Thanks uh, for giving us the morning together again. We're, we're grateful for your word, even in the parts of Scripture that we find uh, challenging. We know that you are uh, gracious in it and you have something to teach us through it. And so I pray, Father, just for my heart to be humble, for all of us to have uh, receptive hearts towards you uh, as we walk through this. We pray for clarity and wisdom. We pray that your spirit would speak uh, to us and uh, in us. And we pray that you would, yeah, just direct us to where we need to go. And we're thankful for it. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so today we get the fun, fun job of talking about gender roles in the church. Aren't you glad you showed up this morning? I, I wish I could call in sick today. No, uh, no it's, <laughs> it's one of those things like gender roles. It's a big hot topic right now in our culture, so it'll be interesting to, to walk through this. Um, but basically what we're going to see are the roles of men and women in the church. What Kind of part one of that in some ways today, and then we'll kind of continue that into a little bit of next week as we get into chapter three. Um, but I will say this passage, this, the second half of Timothy, 1 Timothy 2, is, I think, the most controversial passage in the whole Bible, um, at least in terms of uh, the last 50 years of, of our cultural uh, history. Uh, it's, it's become a very, very uh, contested, questioned, doubted, uh, thrown out passage because, really for two reasons, I'll give you at least the two main reasons that I think that's the case. One is that over the last 50 years, since the 1960s, uh, we've had a major shift in culture in the Western world in regards to gender roles and in regards to men and women. And so a lot of times this, this uh, passage does not land on us in a very modern way. It sounds very antiquated. Uh, it sounds very out of date. And so a lot of times we push away from it because of that. Uh, but the problem, of course, with doing that is when you define Scripture by the changing culture, we're, we're really on a sinking ship, right? We cannot get there. Uh, we can't say that because our society thinks this is, is dumb, we have to throw it away. Like that's obviously as Christians, we don't take that approach. You guys know that. I don't think anyone in this room would take that approach. Uh, but a lot of people do. Uh, and, I, and I know as you read uh, things that are written on this subject. A lot of people just want to throw it out because it just sounds so old-fashioned. Um, but that's, So that's one reason. I don't think that's going to be a huge struggle here. But there is another reason that may be a struggle for some of you and maybe not all of you, but um, the other reason this passage is so controversial is because of how it has been handled historically uh, by the church at times misused and misapplied and really used as a weapon against people. And of course we know that that's not how it ought to be applied. The truths of, of what it says are true, and we need to see them in light of the truth of, of Christ, yes. But we, we should never use Scripture to attack others or hold people into something that we are adding above and beyond. And so we, we've seen a lot of misuse, and it has led, honestly, to a lot of abuse of people in the church. And if you don't think that's true, then praise God that you had a good experience in the church. Um, but I, I think a lot of us didn't. And we say, see how this passage was mistreating or leading to the mistreatment of women in particular. And so I want to be c careful with this, not to uh, whitewash it in any way, but to also uh, address that. Because I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of you. Uh, and I know that you've been to churches, many of you have been a part of churches that have used this 
as a, as a weapon. And so uh, I'm sorry for that. I'm sorry that that's your experience. I'm sorry that that has happened. Um, we're not going to take it in that approach. But, um, but that's one of the reasons why this is uh, so controversial, because it's, it's hard for people to see it used in a healthy way. So with that kind of context in front of us, we're going to look at this. Now, the first a uh, few verses are really not the controversial part. We won't get to the real hard stuff until about verse 12. Um, but verse 8 through 11, I think, is vital for us to get the, the whole tone of the passage. The entire point of the passage is uh, established in verse 8 through 11. And, um, and Paul is taking Timothy through the, the markers, the indicators of a healthy gospel-centered, Jesus-oriented church, right? And so he's talked about the, the need to steer back into the center of the gospel in chapter one. And then in the first half of chapter two, he called on us to pray because we know that there is no gospel-centered church without the power of God working in and through us. And so we have to go to him in prayer. And, and now as we transition still in some of that context of prayer, um, Paul's going to call us to a particular attitude, a demeanor, and, and he's going to apply this attitude differently for men and women, but he's, he's going to take us to the heart of what the church should look like practically. And so look at verse 8. We'll actually read 8 through 11, and we'll just take the whole s- section, and then we'll step back and talk about it. Here's what he says. I, I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now you're asking, how is that not the controversial part? Well, just wait. Okay. Uh, <laughs> It gets so much more controversial. Uh, but here's the idea, right? You, we're looking at Paul calling on men to do a particular thing and women to do a particular thing, right? So there's, he, he specifically calls out men and women. There are differences uh, in how the, these central truths that Paul's getting at um, are applied, right? Because men and women are different. Now, your gender studies professor at Harvard did anyone go to Harvard? I don't know. But if you did, you probably didn't learn that. But most of us know intuitively that men and women are different. We're designed by God in complementary ways. One should not be lording over the other, uh, but we are complementary. We are teams. We are working together, right? We have a purpose for all of us, uh, but we do express things differently. And so what I think Paul is getting across here is the idea of humility, the need for humility in the church and how that applies to us may be different, right? If we're men or women, and, so, and again, this is generalization because not every man and not every woman responds exactly the same way as every other man or every other woman. I get that. I don't think that's Paul's point. Paul's not trying to pigeonhole people into an exact thing, but he's speaking in general terms of what men struggle with as they deal with pride and what women struggle with as they deal with pride because pride is an issue across the board for every sinner, regardless of gender. And then he's going to give us instruction as to how we can combat that pride, specifically 
within our lives. Now, you have to look at your own heart and, and whether you're a man or a woman and see if these things are uh, specific to you or if they're more general. But I think the point is clear. The point is that Paul wants us to be humble people, humble before each other, humble before the Lord. And I think we get to that as we look at verse 8 again. Look at what he says. He says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So he says uh, two things. He desires that the men should pray and lift holy hands. So, so what's he saying there? What's he getting at? Well, I, the, reason I, the reason I say this is about fighting pride is because the, the very thing that he says will happen if we're not praying or lifting holy hands is we will be angry and quarrelsome. And guys, we know this. When our pride is wounded, we tend to lash out in anger. We just, men just tend to do that. Now, not every man, I get it, not every guy does that, but most of us do, right? Most of us, if, we have, if we're caught you know, in a corner and, and our pride is hurt and we don't know how to like, express our feelings, so we just get angry and we blow up and we, and we want to pick a fight. That's generally a struggle that men have. And so what does Paul tell us to do? To fight that, that uh, response through prayer, which is an act of humility in itself, right? You don't pray if you think you've got it figured out. You don't pray if you think you don't need help. You pray because you know you need help. That's what, that's what Paul's saying. Be a prayerful man because your, your heart is tending to move towards pride and prayer is a posture of saying, God, I don't have what, it, what I need and I don't have what it takes to fix myself or anyone else. I need you to do the work. Prayer is an act of humility. And then he says, lifting holy hands. So what is that? That's kind of an odd one. We, we maybe don't talk about this a whole lot, but I, I think he's not, in, he's not commanding us to literally physically lift our hands. I think he's saying that this is a posture of humility. It's a posture of surrender. So if you were to lift your hands, let's say the FBI breaks down your door for some reason, you guys are afraid that's going to happen for some reason. I don't know why, but a lot of you are afraid of that. So let's say they bust down your door. What do you do? You put your hands up so that you don't get shot, right? That's a posture of surrender. And we're called to lift our hands to the Lord as a symbol of saying, God, I'm not in charge, and I'm not here to fight you. I'm here to surrender to you. I'm here to give myself over to your will and your ways. And so Paul begins here. He begins with the men in the church, in the local church, being humble, prayerful, surrendered to Jesus kind of men. And as we surrender to Jesus in prayer and, and uh, our hands lifted up to him in, in that posture of humility, we will see the Lord work in us to not be angry and not to be quarrelsome in our response to the things that happen. Because anger tends to be that response that comes out when our pride is hurt and when it's swelling back up in us, right? We get angry. And so it's, it's vital to note that even though most of this passage has to do with uh, women and how women are to live within the context of the church, um, 
it's, it's important to remember that he doesn't start with that. He starts with the men. Men are called to lead. We are. That's, God has designed that in the order of creation, which we're going to see in a little bit. He's, he's designed that. Now, it doesn't mean women don't have a role to lead in, in capacities um, and in the church, but, but it's different. Men are called to set the, the, the example, ultimately. That's our God-given call, and most of the time we've abdicated that, uh, which is unfortunate. So he calls on the men to pray, lift holy hands without anger or quarreling. And then he says this in verse 9. Look at verse 9. We're going to turn to you ladies and here we go, right? Uh, It says, likewise also. So what, what Paul is indicating here by this word likewise is he's not changing the subject, He's not changing the subject. He's not saying, okay, guys, you do this thing, and then ladies, I got a completely separate thing over here for you. He's saying this is, these are all the same thing, but he's going to talk to you gals about uh, the way your pride may, may, I'm not saying this for every individual in the room, but perhaps your pride comes out this way, and a lot of times it does. So look at what he says. Likewise also, that women should adorn themselves with respectable apparel, with modesty, with self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Okay, so Crystal can come up and tell... No. Uh, um, Here's what he's saying. Paul... (laughs) Thanks. Uh, Paul is saying uh, simply this, that if men's pride comes out in anger and fighting, women tend to have their pride come out in appearance. In appearance. In, you could call it, impressing others. See, Paul's not de- demanding that you ladies don't wear jewelry or do your hair or wear nice clothes. That's not the context of this. I know that's how it's often been applied, and so we, we, we go there because we don't know what else to do. But when we're looking at this in the context of fighting our, our prideful inclinations, ladies tend to, again, generalizing here, tend to spend their time showing off in how they appear uh, on your social media. You're showing the world your, your whole life, and it's like, hey, look at how great my life is. Look at how wonderful this relationship is. Look at this. Look at this. That is not exclusively a women's issue because men do those things as well, but generally speaking, this, is, uh, this tends to be where le- women tend to lean in. It's more on how do I look? What am I appearing like? How do I want people to see me? And I, I, may, I may be wrong. I'll be humble ad- to, to admit I might be wrong, but I think that's generally true. I don't know. You can after, afterwards, you can tell me if I'm completely wrong, but that seems to be what Paul's saying, that, that women's pride is, is still pride. It just expresses itself differently than men. Can women get angry? Absolutely. Can men be show-offs? Absolutely. Uh, Of course. But generally speaking, as we lean towards one or the other, that's what's the issue. And so, as the solution to men's pride is to humbly submit to Jesus, submit to Jesus, lift holy hands, right? He's calling on men to be submissive to Jesus through prayer and raised hands of worship, he's also going to give you ladies something to to do to fight your pride. Look at what it says in verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, you're going to latch towards quietly and submissive. 
Okay, that's where you're going to go. But don't go there first, okay? <laughs> that's, where, that's where we're going to lean uh, because that's like, those are the buzzwords. Um, but look at what Paul actually says. He says, let a woman learn. So here's, here's something I think that we miss because of the culture we live in, the times we live in. Um, Paul's audience in Ephesus, the people he was writing to, the women in this church, would not have been encouraged to learn in any capacity 2,000 years ago. It wasn't a thing. They didn't have schools for girls. So the fact that Paul is saying, hey, I want you women to come into the church and sit under the teaching of the word and learn it is a revolutionary thing. I think we miss that because of just the times we live in. Right? We take all this stuff for granted because of how we've been raised. But in Paul's world, this was a revolutionary thing that he was encouraging women to learn, to come and sit under teaching. Now, of course, he does say to learn quietly and with submissiveness, but again, don't, don't latch on to submissiveness as if it's only a woman's thing because he's already established that men have to submit to Jesus too. And the, and the Bible says, it, actually he wrote to the church in Ephesus in chapter 5, he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, right? So men are called to submission as well and, and being under Christ. So, so don't read this as, well, they're just trying to put me in my place. That's not what Paul's doing. He's saying you should come into the church. You should humbly learn from the word. You should, that's how you fight your pride. And so again, it's not that men don't have a role to sit under the teaching of the word, and it's not that women don't have a role to pray. He's not saying that we don't all do these things, but he's just trying to apply specific instruction to help us be humble people in our churches. And so we have, that's, I think, the the overarching theme of this passage is a gospel-centered church, a faithful church, is a humble church. Church. It's a church that recognizes the need for humility before the Lord and before each other, and that we submit to that as, as he would lead us. And of course, we know genders have different expressions of these same issues. They're all, they're all ultimately the same when you get to the core of it, but the application may need to be different. Okay, so, so that's where we start. Now, uh, we haven't even touched on the the most controversial parts yet. So let's get, get in here. Let's do it. All right. No one's thrown anything at me yet, so I think we can keep going. Uh, verse 12, 12 through uh, 15, well, 14, and we'll stop and we'll read 15 kind of separately. Um, so here's what Paul says. He, he just said to let women learn quietly. And I think actually I kind of blew past this, but that word let is important because, again, he's writing to a culture that was very misogynistic and the men would have just been way more tempted to just throw you out. Um, So he's like, hey, let women learn quietly. Be in the church. Be a part of it. Okay, verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Okay, so this is by far the most controversial of the, of the verses. Maybe 15's a little more even yet, but um, 
but this is what, what Paul is saying. He's clearly saying on the surface, we, we just read it, we can hear it, we don't need to twist it around. He's saying that he does not permit women to teach or exercise authority over a man. Okay, but let, so that, that's true. I, we're going to take it at face value, but let's talk about what Paul is actually prohibiting here. Because again, I think we can read this on the surface level and go, well, Paul's just trying to shut women up and make them be quiet. And, and, and that's, I don't think at all what is going on. The question we have to ask in this, man, I, just in studying all this, there are so many opinions on this subject. So if you don't like mine, you can find another one, I guess. But um, there's a lot of opinions. There's a lot of opinions because people are just trying to make sense of this. And again, this is not our center. Like I'm going to try to bring us back to the center in a little bit. Um, but the question is, is Paul prohibiting women from every form of teaching uh, at all? Or is he prohibiting women from a particular form of teaching? That's the question. This is what, this is what people have to wrestle with, okay? So this could be one thing or it could be two things. It could be two things as in teach and exercise authority, that Paul's prohibiting. So then teach would be its own category and exercise authority a separate category. Or it could be one thing, in other words, thinking that it's teaching with authority. And I'll just be, I'll just be transparent about my view. My view is that that's what he's talking about, that teaching and authority are kind of combined concepts here. And so I think what Paul is prohibiting is not all teaching, not all, uh, you know, keeping women in the corner, just isolated to themselves, but he's prohibiting women from teaching with authority, meaning what we would call preaching, the ministry of preaching, which comes from an elder, a pastor leading the congregation uh, who are qualified, called men to lead the congregation. That role is reserved for qualified men and not called upon for women. That's my view, okay? And I don't think that sh- shocks you if you guys have been around here long enough. Um, but I don't think that, the, that this is uh, prohibiting women from all forms of teaching. I think women are called upon to teach. I think women have the gift of teaching. They can teach in lots of other contexts. Um, Proverbs 31, the most famous passage on womanhood, says she opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Women have a role to teach. Women uh, are obviously called to teach their children. Nobody questions that. Titus chapter 2 says women can teach other women. Um, And I do think that also the Bible in Colossians 3.16, which says teach one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs is not closed to just men. That's a general command for the whole church. And so women can have a role in teaching one another in a certain context in the church. But I think what Paul's prohibiting here is the specific teaching with authority, meaning the preaching of God's word from the pulpit on a Sunday morning, that's reserved for the role of an elder or pastor. And I think that that actually is where Paul goes in the context. Because in chapter three, he launches into the qualifications of an elder right after these verses. That's where he immediately goes. So this is not a separate issue. 
He's establishing the proper role of responsibility and leadership in the church. And he's going to, next week, we're going to spend a bunch of time talking about the qualifications of an elder. So it's not that every man ever, just because he's a man, can be a, a preacher, teacher. There have to be qualifications that are met. And, and Paul lays all those out, which we will explore next week. Can't explore them this week, we don't have time for that. But I, I really think that in the context of this passage, he's talking about the role of elder uh, being reserved for, the, for men to serve in that office and therefore have the responsibility of teaching God's word um, in that context. So um, I think that, that makes the most sense to me. Now, again, you can be a believer in Jesus and disagree with that. Um, there's lots of opinions on this issue, and I, I get that. Um, but one of the common issues or one of the common questions that comes up is, well, is Paul prohibiting all women for all time in every church from, from preaching and serving as an elder? Or is it specifically for the church in Ephesus? That's another thing you, you encounter when you study this. Is like Some people will say, no, 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 it's not for everybody. It's just for the people in this particular church because those ladies were crazy, but not all ladies are crazy. Like, then that's, that's kind of the, the way people try to twist this around and, and make it say something. The problem with that view, though, is um, Paul doesn't make it a cultural issue. He actually defends his position by going back to Genesis so I don't know that you can be much more transcultural than going back to the beginning of time, right? Like that, that's where Paul goes, right? He says, verse 13, because or for Adam was formed first and then Eve. So the, there's an order to creation. And so men are formed first in the creation order of God's design, which puts them in a place, again, not every man, but qualified, Jesus-centered men uh, have that role to, to take, right? And then he says in verse 14 that Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So now he takes us to Genesis chapter 3. And he goes, okay, so when Adam was formed first and then Eve, that's the order of creation. Then you get to Genesis chapter 3, so that's Genesis 2. Genesis 3, you get to the, the fall, uh, the, the entrance of sin into the world, and who was deceived before Adam? It was, it was Eve. Eve was the one who brought sin to Adam. Adam was complicit in this. Don't, and by the way, just so you know, this is the only place in the scriptures that blames Eve for the fall of man. Okay? Everywhere else it blames Adam. Notice that. Okay? This is the only place where Paul goes, Adam, uh, Eve was deceived first. Factually true, but Adam was responsible. He was responsible. Okay, so just know that. It's never Eve plunged us into sin. It was always Adam that did that. Uh, now, that's, that's important to notice. Either way, there is, a, there is an order here, and Paul is pointing that out. So that's why you can't really go to the, well, it's just a cultural issue in Ephesus. It's not a problem for everybody. It's just a problem for them. And that's where a lot of people try to take this because it, it's hard to, it's hard to stomach some of this, and I, I get it with our modern uh, view on things. But there is a creation order that, that Paul uses uh, to defend this view, and that's pretty transcultural. So, uh, all right, let's look at one last verse, and it's the worst of all. So, <laughs> here we go. I saved it for last. All right. 
Uh, so verse 15, yet she will be saved through childbearing. Okay, come on, Paul. Like seriously, like really? Okay, here we go. She will be saved through childbearing if, she, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Okay, so this is fun too. Uh, is Paul saying here that women have to have babies to be saved? No, thank you. You guys all said it. Good for you. Uh, no, he's not saying that because that would contradict everything that Paul teaches about grace uh, and salvation through the work of Christ and not through our works. Uh, this would contradict everything we know about the gospel to say that women have to have babies to be saved. So Paul's not saying that. We can establish that. So what is Paul saying then? Um, th- this is obviously one that is Again, hard to wrap our heads around. There's probably three or four common views on this. Um, I'm going to take one. I found one that I think is most compelling, and I'll share that with you. But uh, by all means, take a look at some other ones if you're interested in it. Um, But here's what I think Paul is referring to when he says that women will be saved through childbearing. I don't think he's speaking generally of all women having children. I think he's speaking specifically about one childbirth, the birth of Christ. See, we have to go back to Genesis 3 because that's the context that Paul's in. And, and some of the other views are, are just not as compelling because they kind of pivot away from Paul's argument in Genesis to make their case for, why, for what Paul means here. Like I've, the, probably one of the most common views beyond the one I'm sh- sharing with you is that women will express their faith through their motherhood and through raising children. And that's a very common view, but it doesn't make sense in the context. And I'm not saying that that's not true. I'm not saying that motherhood is not one way that women can walk with Christ. Of course it is. But I don't think that's Paul's point because it, that pivots away from the whole story of Genesis chapters 2 and 3, which Paul's already taken us in, in verse uh, 13 and 14. So if you go back to Genesis 3 and verse 15, God has come down, the the sin has entered the world, Eve and Adam have, have fallen into sin. God basically starts to tell them what's going to happen now. And in Genesis 15, God turns to the serpent to Satan, who was there to deceive Eve. And he speaks directly to the serpent. And here's what he says. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, meaning Eve's offspring, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So what theologians call this verse is the... uh, the, the first gospel message, right? Because this is the first promise of God to redeem the world uh, through Eve's lineage and line. And he speaks to the serpent and says, you know what, your head's gonna get crushed by one of her kids. And who is that kid? It's Jesus, right? Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise that, that Satan would be crushed, that ultimately sin would be remedied and dealt with and, and brought to an end. Jesus was the fulfillment of this. And I think that's what Paul is pivoting to here, to say that men and women equally come to Christ 
through him being born into our world, by being uh, born as a baby, by being raised into a sinless man, by being crucified in the place of sinners and then rising from the dead. This, I think, is what Paul is pivoting to. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it's not just generally you're going to be saved, ladies, through childbearing, but that you will be saved just like everybody else through the birth of a child, the, the birth of Christ into this world. And I think when we stop and ponder that reality, it's just so glorious. It's beautiful. And, and it's something we need to think about, that the God of glory, the God who created all things, the God who had been rebelled against in the, in the Garden of Eden after creating a perfect world, that this God would love humanity enough to be born the way we're born, born through a woman, Paul says in Galatians that he was born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law. And this is how we're saved. I mean, just think about this. The Lord of all would choose to enter our world, not not by just coming down as some fully grown man, which he could have done. Like, what, what was to stop God from just bringing Jesus down and he was raised and he was just a grown-up at the time, right? He could have done this, but he didn't come into our world that way. He came down, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, he was in the womb for nine months, he was born as an infant, he was completely dependent on his mother for survival, he was raised into a man and he would be crucified for sinners some 30 years later. This is what brings us salvation, This is the story of the Bible. This is the whole hope of the world. The whole Old Testament is preparing us for Jesus because Jesus came through a family. He came through a line of people. And the whole story of the Old Testament is showing us that story that gets us to Jesus and how he was born into our world. So here's the truth. We may not know everything about this passage. And and the view that I've presented here may or may not be the right one. I don't know, but I'm I'm compelled enough to say that this is what I think, and I'm convinced of it enough. But here's what we do know. Let's, Let's land on what we do know. We know that we have a humble and loving Savior who would come into the world to die for us, all of us, to bring men and women into him, so that we can say with with the Apostle Paul that there is now no male or female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. Our, Our position before Jesus has nothing to do with our gender. Our positions within the church may have to do with our gender and our qualifications beyond that significantly, to note that. But but our salvation has nothing to do with whether we're men or women because Jesus loves us all and he was born into our world to save us all. And that's what should drive our hearts today. That's what should encourage our hearts today, that we will be saved through the birth of the, the child that, would, that was promised in Genesis chapter 3. So let's turn real quickly to Philippians chapter 2, and then we'll close our time. Um, I want to pivot here because the whole, I want to get us back to the start, because again, we're kinda, we've been in the weeds now for good half hour, 45 minutes, and it's just like, we can get lost in this. Let's remember where Paul starts. Paul started this whole section with a call for men and women to be humble. 
And the reason we're called to humility is because that is fundamentally who Jesus is. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, and there is, right? Any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Unity, right? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing out of pride. That's what he says. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Here's what he says in verse 5. Verse 4, rather. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, catch this, being born in the likeness of men. How did Jesus humble himself? By being born in our likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus humbled himself, and Paul says because he did that, we ought to humble ourselves because he's expressed that and showed that perfectly in his life and death and resurrection. That's what we need to focus on, especially when we get to these hard passages. We can get so caught up in all the controversy, but really what this points us to is the simple truth of the gospel that Jesus Christ loves you and he loved you enough to come into your world and live as one of us to die in our place and then rise again for our salvation. That's worth celebrating and that's worth rejoicing and worshiping him in. And if we see him for who he is, we can humble ourselves before him and we can humble ourselves before one another. Okay, let me pray and then we'll, we'll move on here. Jesus, thank you that you have come into our world. We don't deserve any of it. We didn't even ask you for it. You did this out of pure love for us. And I pray, God, that the truths of your word would not be muddied or wouldn't be, that we wouldn't get lost in the weeds in these things, but that we would recognize the roles that you have given us. They are roles that have dignity and worth, whether we're men or women. You have called us, you've created us, you have have specifically led us to the giftings that we have by your spirit. I pray we would hone in on not what we can't do, but what we are called to do, which is to be humble and love each other really well, whether we're men, women, elders, or, or not. Lord, we just pray that we would see those things, that we would be a humble church that we'd be changed by Jesus. And we ask these things in his name.